I'm Felix Bunnell, and this is Episode 8 of The Housebound Historian. We're reading Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle, written by Murray Morgan, published in 1951 by Viking in New York. On this episode, we'll begin Section 2, which is called Mary Kenworthy and the Railroads, 1873 to 1893. We'll do about the first 10 pages or so, which I think is Sections 1, 2, and part of Section 3. For some towns, as for some people, maturity comes gradually. For others, it comes abruptly with the death of a father or the death of a dream. Seattle came of age in 1873, four years after it was incorporated, four months and a day after Doc Maynard died. Maturity was implicit in an eight-word telegram sent on July 14th to Arthur A. Denny from Kalama on the Columbia by two commissioners for the Northern Pacific Railway. The message read, We have located the terminus on Commencement Bay. Commencement Bay was 20 miles away. For Seattle, this was disaster. The pioneers of Puget Sound had cut their trees and built their cabins and forced the wilderness back from a dozen beachheads. They had fought the Indians and the fleas. They had endured the damp and the mud and one another. They had gone without salt and flour. They had left friends and relatives and comforts 2,000 miles behind. All this they had done to earn and to hold the claims that were in effect tickets in the great railroad lottery. Whatever town got the terminus would get rich. Its landholders would see the value of their lots rise, and its businessmen would have customers by the hundreds instead of by the dozen. Every Puget Sounder knew by rote the reasons why this town should become the Tidewater Terminus. The 1,800 inhabitants of Olympia were sure the railroad builders would not bypass the territorial capital, the largest town, Seattle disputed this claim, and the oldest town on the Sound. The 300 people at Stillicum bespoke the advantages of their army post and their lovely houses. They pointed out that Stillicum was 20 miles nearer the ocean than Olympia. True, the 800 residents of Port Townsend agreed, but look at us, we're right up here where the Sound and the Strait of Juan de Fuca meet. Yes, said the handful of mill workers up the Sound at Whatcom, but you're stuck out there on the Olympic Peninsula. Who's going to build a railroad clear around the Sound to reach Port Townsend when we're here? And while the debate went on and on among those who were not in position to make the decision, the people of Seattle were smug in their conviction that geography was on their side. Seattle, in spite of its late start, was challenging Olympia for the lead in population. In 1872, the town formally claimed 2,000 residents and 575 buildings. Although 50 of the buildings were barns and stables, there were 57 two-story structures and 151 of one-and-a-half stories. With a tannery, a brickworks, a shipyard, a blacksmith shop, and two sawmills inside the town, and a number of coal mines nearby, Seattle was the leading industrial community in the territory. Behind the town lay Snoqualmie Pass, where the Cascades dipped to 3,000 feet, and it was logical that a railroad should cross the mountains here and bring to the Sound, for shipment by water, the grain harvest of the rolling hills of eastern Washington. The alternate route was along the Columbia, which meant money for Portland. Seattle, lying at the mouth of the Snoqualmie Funnel, expected to handle that grain and since the town dominated the narrow shelf of flatland between the water and the mountains, it expected to make money off all north-south rail and road traffic. The site was a natural focal point of Puget Sound commerce. This logic of economic geography, plus the payroll of Yesler's Mill, had brought about 2,000 people to Seattle. But the very fact that so many people bet on Seattle as the railroad terminus hurt Seattle's chances. Why should an empire builder raise the value of other people's property when he could pick an unpopulated site for his terminus and make for himself the profit off the rise in land prices. In 1833, 
only two years after the first locomotive in America chugged down a short stretch of track. The editor of The Immigrant, an obscure weekly in Michigan, suggested that rails be laid from coast to coast. He was smiled at by the few who read his visionary proposal. Twenty years later, in 1853, Congress authorized the exploration of four possible transcontinental routes. The most northerly route was assigned to General Isaac Stevens. He was the first to complete his survey, and, like the men assigned to each of the other routes, he felt that the terrain he had explored must be the best. He assured the people of Puget Sound in 1854 that they would get a railroad, quote, within five years, unquote. And in his official reports, he pointed out that his route was the shortest, perhaps the easiest, and that the Puget Sound ports were hundreds of miles nearer to the Orient than San Francisco. As territorial governor and as delegate to Congress, he thumped the drums for a northern railroad. But California had the population, the glamour of gold, and more effective lobbyists. No one in the East saw much point in running a railroad 2,000 miles at an estimated cost of $100 million for the benefit of a dozen or so Indian villages. No one saw much point in it, that is, until 1864, when crusty old Thaddeus Stevens pushed through Congress a bill offering a grant of lands to aid in building a railroad and telegraph line from Lake Superior to Puget Sound by the Northern Route. The Northern Pacific Railroad Company was organized immediately. Under terms of the law, it was supposed to start laying track within two years. In that time, the company was able to raise about $200,000 and to spend about $200,000, but it laid no track. The board was then reorganized to admit some experienced railroad men who knew enough to look to Congress for help. They asked for more time before starting to build, granted, and for a cash subsidy, refused. Next, they turned to financial circles for help. In December 1869, the men of the Northern Pacific found a backer in the handsome form of Jay Cook, a Philadelphia banker who specialized in floating bonds. Cook was a perfect flower of the Gilded Age. He lived in a 52-room mansion outside Philadelphia. He could summon the President of the United States to dinner to talk over business matters. He owned a half-dozen senators and as many governors. When he became interested in the Northern Pacific, he consulted the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, himself a financier about its prospects, and that worthy assured him, quote, I should like to be in the board of directors, as to which I suppose there will be no difficulty, and am tempted to offer myself as a candidate for the presidency of the board. My antecedents and reputation would justify a good salary, unquote. It was not surprising that after Cook had undertaken to finance the Northern Pacific, Congress enlarged the land grant until it covered 60 miles on each side of the right-of-way, more than 70,000 square miles in all, a grant half again as large as all of New York State. Land, not transport, was probably uppermost in Cook's mind. He saw the possibility of turning the West into a personal thief. In his agreement with the Northern Pacific, Cook inserted a far-sighted clause. Quote, a company shall be organized for the purpose of purchasing lands, improvement of town sites or other purposes, and the same shall be divided in the same proportion. That is, the original interest shall have one half, and J. Cook shall have one half. Cook began operating as Northern Pacific financier in December 1869, and only two months later crews were smoothing the hard prairie ground west of Duluth. In May, after the Northern Pacific had made a deal with the Oregon Steam Navigation Company, under which the latter agreed to let the transcontinental line use its tracks along the Columbia, work started in the west. The company picked Kalama, an undeveloped site on the north shore of the Columbia, as a base for its western operations, and it started laying a narrow-gauge line north to Puget Sound. But where on Puget Sound? 
No one knew. The suspense mounted steadily and over a long period. The company was required by Congress, which at Cook's request had obediently amended the charter, to build only 25 miles the first year and 40 miles a year after that until it reached tidewater. The NP directors were in no hurry to reveal their plans. As the line inched north, the company negotiated with rival towns, seeing which would offer the most. By 1871, it was popularly believed that only three places were still in the running, Olympia, Seattle, and Muckleteo, the last a tiny settlement just south of present-day Everett. In 1872, the NP crews were working across the plain southeast of Olympia. It became apparent they were going to bypass the capital. The best Olympia could hope for was a spur, and the railroad said the town would have to build that itself. Seattle was still in a glow over its rival's discomfort when the wire came locating the terminus on Commencement Bay. No news could have been worse. This meant not only that Seattle would be deprived of the terminus, but that the hamlet of Tacoma, with 200 residents, a settlement barely two years old, would swiftly grow to challenge Seattle's industrial leadership. The new town, only 20 miles away by water, would undoubtedly dedicate itself to the economic destruction of its nearest rival. The 2,000 residents of Seattle, with no effective allies, were pitted against a community sponsored by a transcontinental railroad, which was backed by the nation's leading banker, who had the personal support of the President of the United States and the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court as well as the votes of a substantial number of senators and representatives. A number of Seattle pioneers caught the next paddle wheeler south to Commencement Bay. Their decision to desert was understandable. What is hard to understand is the stubbornness, which amounted to vision, of those who remained on Elliott Bay. Soon after the NP message ticked off the wire, the pioneers of Seattle assembled on the sawdust by Yesler's Mill and assured each other that all was not lost. They would raise enough money to build a line across the mountains and meet the transcontinental tracks in the Walla Walla country. There was no sense, they told one another, in traffic being detoured down the Columbia and then north. A straight line is the shortest distance between two points. Yes, sir. All they had to do was raise the money and build the cutoff, and grain and goods and wealth would flow to Seattle. There was one trouble. No one would invest in Seattle's road. Few would invest in Mr. Cook's railroad either. The messiest scandal in American political history, the Credit Mobilier affair, had just broken, and it concerned the financing of the Union Pacific. The public had learned that, quote, every step in that mighty enterprise had been taken in fraud, unquote. A private holding company, made up of individuals who risked almost nothing, had milked between 30 and $50 million in profits from the semi-public funds used to finance the first railroad to reach the Pacific. The graft had been made possible by the blindness of public officials, and the public learned that its officials had profited from their blindness. Among those taken care of by the financiers were both of the Republicans who served as vice president under Grant, the Democratic floor leader in the House, and a gaudy array of senators and representatives. The pride the public had felt in the gleaming tracks that stretched from sea to sea turned to disgust. They refused to buy more railroad bonds. No advertising pamphlets that Jay Cook's publicity men could devise, no editorials that his paid editors could write, no sermons that the ministers he subsidized could preach, convince the people they should finance the Northern Pacific. In September, the bronze doors of Jay Cook's central bank closed, and the great man, a symbol of his age, stood weeping behind them. The panic of 1873 was on. Work on the Northern Pacific shuddered to a halt, but not before the line from Kalama to Tacoma was completed. In September, the bronze doors of Jay Cook's central bank closed, and the great man, a symbol of his age, stood weeping behind them. 
the Panic of 73 was on. Work on the Northern Pacific shuddered to a halt, but not before the line from Kalama to Tacoma was completed. Seattle could snicker at the dedication ceremonies at Tacoma. It rained all day the line was completed. There was no money to buy a golden spike, and the workers who hadn't been paid and weren't going to be climaxed the festivities by blockading the track with logs and threatening to remove a few bridges and hold them as security. It was a farce, all right, but there was no laughing away the railroad. The steel bands stretched from the Columbia to the Sound. Tacoma had the terminus, and the local railroad officials took pleasure in bedeviling Seattle. They arranged the train-boat schedule so that anyone coming up the Sound from Seattle en route to Portland had to wait for 20 hours in Tacoma, and it was the same going back. As the months wore on and nobody stepped forward to finance construction of the Snoqualmie Cutoff, Seattle citizens grew worried. They held another mass meeting and talked one another into desperate optimism. They agreed to lay the line over the mountains with their own hands. On May Day, 1874, the people assembled on the east bank of the Duwamish and bespoke their determination. As they grew more and more long-winded in praising what the citizenry was about to do, single-minded old Henry Yesler got more and more impatient. When his turn came to speak, he picked up a shovel and said eloquently, quote, Let's quit fooling and get to work, unquote. That, of course, was harder. When the sweat had dried and the blisters had broken and the muscles had grown stiff and the first enthusiasm had been rubbed off, the people of Seattle realized that, though, as the speakers had said, their destiny was now in their own hands, their hands were not calloused enough or skilled enough or numerous enough nor were their backs strong enough to push the road through. It would take them a century to get the tracks across the mountains. Work dwindled. Eventually, a Scottish engineer named James Coleman took over the aborted project and reshaped it into a line to the coal fields behind the town of Renton. As such, it served Seattle well and made Coleman a millionaire, but it did not solve the problem of direct connections with the East. Many in Seattle had come to have a deep hatred for high finance. The realization of the degree to which their destinies could be controlled by the decisions, even the whims, of a Philadelphia banker and a few of his economic henchmen had shocked them. Hostility to Eastern capital became a persistent strain in the community consciousness. Yet it was high finance at its dizziest pinnacle that gave Seattle a breathing spell after the Northern Pacific picked Tacoma as its terminus. The collapse of Jay Cook and his railroad bonds had been brought about, at least in part, by a rival banking house, Drexel Morgan and Company. This outfit had been formed in 1871 when Anthony Drexel, the second biggest banker in Philadelphia, had combined forces with the rising young financier J.P. Morgan. They had dedicated themselves to capturing some of the public and semi-public business on which Cook almost had a monopoly. Drexel controlled the Philadelphia Ledger, which carried on a sustained crusade against the Northern Pacific. With Cook's failure, work halted on the transcontinental line, which had been laid as far as Bismarck, North Dakota, and Seattle was given a chance to reorganize for its war with Tacoma. When, a decade later, the Northern Pacific was completed, it was high finance that placed, momentarily, a friend of Seattle in the office of the president of the line. Henry Villard was a Bavarian who had come to this country at the age of 18. He taught school, edited a German-language weekly in Wisconsin, covered the Lincoln-Douglas debates for the New Yorker Staatszeitung, married the daughter of William Lloyd Garrison, and, during the Civil War, distinguished himself as a war correspondent for Horace Greeley's Tribune by scoring a beat on the Union disaster at Fredericksburg. As a reporter, Villard became the intimate of the great, and after the war he found an interesting job in Boston as secretary of the American Social Science Association, work which permitted him 
quote, to study public and corporate financing, including railways and banks, unquote. He studied himself into a nervous breakdown and went back to his native Black Forest to recuperate. In Germany, as in America, he mingled with bankers, many of them who had been taken in by the promotion pamphlets of the railroad builders in America and held bonds now worth a cent on the dollar. Villard agreed to serve as the agent of the foreign bondholders of the Oregon and California Railroad, an incomplete coastal line which had fallen into the hands of Ben Holliday, the financier who had so outmaneuvered young Mercer on the steamship deal, and see what he could salvage. In pursuing his studies of corporate financing in the Far West on behalf of his new clients, Villard examined the structure of the Oregon Steam Navigation Company, which controlled traffic along the Columbia. What he learned interested him. He made a few practiced financial gestures and took control of the OSNC. Then he talked to the directors of the Northern Pacific, who had a few crews out making motions at construction beyond Bismarck. Villard suggested a deal in which OSNC would become the western section of the Northern Pacific, but the directors weren't cooperative. Villard went to New York, talked to his friends among the financiers, told them he needed a lot of money but not what he needed it for. Such was Villard's reputation as a financial wizard that his admirers advanced him $8 million, on no other security than his name, and with no intimation of what it would be invested in. With these funds, Villard bought control of the Northern Pacific. He hired enough men to push the line through to the Columbia, where it joined the rails of the OSNC, and he drove the Golden Spike himself. To Seattle's joy, Villard indicated that he saw no reason to ruin the town on Elliott Bay. He bought the little rail line to the Renton coal fields and started work on a spur leading north from Tacoma to Seattle. He came to Seattle to receive a hero's welcome, and then he went broke. A financier rather than a railroad man, Villard had moved too fast, had spent too much, had not thought of a profitable investment so much as he dreamed of a world empire of trade. He overreached himself. When he fell, in January 1884, Men with their eyes on the account books instead of the horizon took control of the line Villard had completed. Again, these were men who preferred that Seattle should not prosper. They canceled the service along the spur north from Tacoma, and the city was cut off from direct trade with most of the continent. With the end of construction work on the railroad, the Northwest again slid into a business depression. Many people in Seattle resented the instability of the frontier economy, none more so than Mrs. J.T. Kenworthy. Mary Kenworthy was a tall, slender brunette who had crossed the plains in a covered wagon with her tailor husband. She was 35 years old at the time she left her native Illinois, a handsome, high-spirited woman who found life on the frontier fascinating. The Kenworthys built a big frame house at Fifth and Union, just across from the university campus. Housekeeping kept her busy, but not so busy that she failed to attend the lectures that constituted Seattle's chief cultural activity. In August 1871, she heard handsome Mrs. Laura DeForce Gordon lecture in Yesler's Hall on Our Next Great Political Problem, Woman Suffrage. She was deeply impressed, and later the same year she was among those who crowded into the Methodist Brown Church to cheer Susan B. Anthony, the national leader of the suffrage movement, and Abigail Scott Dunaway of Portland, the Northwest's first female literary figure. Mary Kenworthy joined the Woman Suffrage Association, the radical wing of the movement, through the 70s, she attended nearly all the suffrage meetings, but she was elected to no offices and attracted little attention. That was to come later. Perhaps she was held back during those years by her husband, a dark, shy little man who worked hard at the tailor's trade and made a good suit and a good living. Mr. Kenworthy seems to have had little interest in politics or in abstract economics, and his wife may have deferred to him. 
He died in 1880, and after a brief period of formal mourning, Mary Kenworthy emerged as a character in her own right. The widow Kenworthy had watched Seattle grow from a village with stumps in the streets to a town with planks for pavement and board sidewalks and 20 buildings of brick. When she had arrived, everybody in town, the whole thousand of them, had known Doc Maynard. But a decade later, less than a third of the townsfolk could remember him. The population was 3,533 in 1880, and Mary Kenworthy was to see it rise an average of 3,500 a year for the next decade. The railroad brought the new population, but the increase was not an unmixed blessing. Mary Kenworthy had read the newspaper reports of the progress of the tracks across the plains and mountains, tracks that were laid by the cheap labor that Villard had imported, mostly Irish and Chinese. She had watched the fights among the financiers for the profits from the line, watched her fellow townsfolk bask in the sun of Villard's smile, and shiver under the calculated neglect of Villard's successors. She saw her town grow in size and saw the property of those who had come early, including herself, rise in value. She saw the deserving and the undeserving make fortunes through blind luck, and she saw others, just as deserving or undeserving, go broke. She dreamed the old dream of a society in which this could not happen. Mary Kenworthy wanted to reform the world, and she listened to anyone who was sure he knew a way. She took up with the spiritualists and union leaders, with vegetarians and socialists, with prohibitionists and single taxers, with anyone who stood for change. The big frame house hard by the university campus came to be a center of agitation against the interests. She entertained the leaders of the Knights of Labor and of the Agrarians. She spoke at union meetings on behalf of the Knights' One Big Union idea. She spoke for the Free Silver People and the Populists and the unaffiliated People's Party that arose to oppose businessmen's government in the city. Years later, a man who had watched her activities in this period said, quote, Mary wasn't brilliant. She was a good woman who let her emotions guide her politics. She just couldn't help being for anybody who was against something, unquote. She bought her bread from a baker who quoted Karl Marx. We'll stop there on episode 8 of The Housebound Historian. The next episode we'll pick up and learn more about Mrs. Kenworthy and the Railroads, 1873 to 1893. That's section 2 of Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle, written by Murray Morgan, published in 1951 by Viking in New York. I'm the housebound historian, Felix Bunnell.